Well, we're going to close out Leviticus tonight. And uh, one of the gratifying things about having gone through Leviticus now, um, if you're counting 38 messages into 60 for the Pentateuch, but one of the gratifying things about going through Leviticus um, has been the shock and surprise for many of you that Leviticus is actually interesting. <laughs> and we said at the very outset that we wanted to prove that, um, that there are no exceptions to 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so I trust you have found it as rich as I have um, as we look now at the last two chapters, chapters 26 and 27. My son Michael shared with me a saying that he learned in economics class at the Master's University. He said it stuck with him as a, as a practical lesson about contracts. And in the early world, the ancient world, they would call them covenants. But here's what he said, the professor said about contracts. The saying is, the big print giveth and the small print taketh away. (laughs) In other words, the easy part to read of a contract contains the good things. The reason you're making the deal in the first place, buying a house, buying a car, entering into a business arrangement, a, a credit card, those are contracts, all of those things. But the hard part, the fine print, the small print, contains all the information on what you can do to lose all the benefits in that contract. Well, as we close out Leviticus here, chapter 26 in particular reads very much like a contract. The big print, verses 1 through 13, outlines all the benefits and blessings that God will impart to his people Israel for covenant faithfulness. The small print... Verses 14 through 46 outlines all the curses and punishments for violating God's covenant. But unlike a human contract in which the fine print, the small print, is made tiny to discourage you from reading it so that you'll sign on the dotted line. In this case, the so-called small print is so detailed and larger than life because God wants to make certain that it's read, make certain that it's understood, make certain that it's believed. In fact, this final section of Leviticus bears the mark of what we've discussed before, the pattern of the suzerain-vassal treaty, which we've talked about of the ancient Near East, a treaty in which a large dominant power or a great king has conquered or subdued or even rescued a small helpless nation and therefore makes a covenant with them. And the covenant basically says this, obey the great king and he will bless and prosper and protect you disobey the great king and he will crush you now some have said that this makes god cruel and vindictive to make this sort of arrangement this sort of covenant but let's picture it this way psalm 24 tells us very clearly that god owns everything and owns everyone and by virtue of his creation of everything all sinful humanity has besmirched and sullied all that is his And so any sort of covenant promising blessing of any kind is a grace from the Lord. It is a kindness. It's an act of absolute mercy to a people who truly deserve only judgment. And as we've gone through Exodus in particular and then Leviticus, I think we've clearly seen that the blessings of living in a theocratic uh, society in which God will bless you and protect you are overwhelming. They're tremendous blessings. And as we've walked through it, we've seen that to live in a faithful Israel would have been a wonderful experience. It would have been a delight 
to worship God in that way. Now, of course, we have the advantage of the full revelation of all of Scripture. We know the name of and we know our Savior, Jesus Christ, so we can never go back. But from the standpoint of an Israelite in that day, what a glorious opportunity for them to live under the protection of their great king. Now, as you might expect, the end of Leviticus is very applicational. A lot of application. And many have said, and and I would believe this, that the Apostle Paul, in his pattern in writing his epistles, where he gives doctrine and then application, simply patterns that after Leviticus. And so that is the pattern of many books of the Bible. And this is no exception. And as always, we can make a legitimate bridge to our context as recipients of the new covenant in Christ. And so we'll make extensive application this evening. But when it comes to the matter of understanding God's blessing and his discipline of Israel, it's important to be very precise. So what we need to do is a little preliminary discussion about how we apply God's blessing and punishment of Israel to our new covenant context. We can't just do this kind of willy-nilly. We have to be precise. So the way to understand this is that basically, and to keep this as simple as possible, there are two layers of application to the new covenant believer. The first layer of application is that um, what we're reading here in Leviticus is how God is dealing with the nation of Israel as a whole. And this has definite implications for how God deals with individual Christians. In other words, we can take the nation of Israel as an entity as an example of how God may deal with the individual Christian in the new covenant. That's the first layer. And that's, that's very basic to us. But the second layer is a little bit more dicey because within the nation as a whole, there is also the salvation status of every individual within the nation. Those who have been forgiven by faith and those who have not. So when Israel as a nation is generally blessed, there are still those, to use a New Testament term, who are unbelievers. And on the flip side, when Israel as a nation is generally punished, there are still those who are believers. For example, the prophet Daniel carried off into captivity because of the overall punishment of Israel and yet himself personally a a saved individual, a faithful individual. Jeremiah, a faithful worshiper of Yahweh and yet he was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem because of the unfaithfulness of Israel as a whole. And so in that case, in that layer, there are implications for the church in terms of those who are saved and those who are fraudulent within the church, who are false believers. A little side note also, the great national discipline of Israel always has an effect. And the effect is, is that it purges the nation of the individuals who despise and abhor the word of God, which is what we're going to see one of the themes is tonight. And so tonight concerns the topic of holiness and covenant faithfulness. And we've used the word covenant a lot when we have been going through uh, the Pentateuch here. And, and we have talked about the new covenant, but we don't often talk about all the covenants together, particularly in the idea of covenant faithfulness. Because I think covenant faithfulness is a concept that is generally lost on the Christian, lost on the evangelical church, especially in America. And what we get instead is the catchphrase, well, I'm free in Christ. I have freedom in Christ. Now, that is true, but let me tell you what freedom in Christ is and what it isn't. Freedom in Christ basically means two things. 
it means you are not under the law of Moses. And second, it means you are free to stop sinning and to start obeying the law of Christ. So in other words, you go from someone who may have been put under the law of Moses if, if you've been brought up that way, but now you're under the law of Christ. It is, it is not the idea of being free from all spiritual laws. But a Christian really is just simply one who submitted to Christ and then desires to obey him. Here's what is not. Freedom of Christ is not the right to do anything you want without fear of consequences from the Lord. And since we see multiple examples in the New Testament of the severe consequences of willful disobedience by God's people, we understand that there is a standard to obey the law of Christ. And someone might say, well, that's legalism. No, that's faith. We have faith in Christ. And Jesus said, if you love me, you what? You obey my commandments. And so we don't simply say, well, we're free to do anything we want. We are free to interact in the new covenant in the way that Christ has outlined for us. Okay, that's kind of our foundational uh, material there. Let's divide our thoughts into three basic categories tonight for chapters 26 and 27. And I want to call these three principles for God's interaction with his people. Three principles for God's interaction with his people that will help us understand the concept of holiness and covenant faithfulness together. So here, I'll just give you the three principles up front here. First principle is God rewards covenant faithfulness. God rewards covenant faithfulness. And the second principle is God disciplines covenant unfaithfulness. He disciplines covenant unfaithfulness. And then the last principle, which closes out Leviticus, is God expects integrity from his people. God expects integrity. So God rewards covenant faithfulness. God disciplines covenant unfaithfulness. And God expects integrity from his people. And we'll have, because of the applicational nature of the end of Leviticus, we'll have multiple applications for each of those principles. First principle of God's interaction with his people. God rewards covenant faithfulness. Now, this section is short enough that we can just read it. So follow along with me. I'm going to read Leviticus 26, 1 through 13. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke 
and made you walk erect. Verses 1 and 2, basically just a, a brief summary, really, of all the commands that God has given Israel. And then verse 3 commences with, if you will do these things, God will give great blessings. And we could classify these blessings into four categories. First category is the category of produce. Produce. This is an agricultural dream. Uh, verse 4, always having rain when you need it. Uh, ground crops will always be abundant. Your orchards will be heavy with fruit. Verse 5 describes a phenomenal situation during the late and spring, late spring and, and summer. The grain harvest will be so plentiful that threshing, that is the separating of the edible grain from the plant, will go all the way to the grape harvest. It'll take that long to get all the grain that has been harvested. Grape harvest then would go approximately from August to October normally, but God will make it so abundant that it'll continue until it's time to plant seeds again in the early spring. In other words, about the time you're done harvesting your profit from the grain, it's time to harvest profit from the vineyard. And about the time you're done with that, you're already planting new seed. And this happens over and over again. And it's almost, we could say tongue in cheek, that you're exhausted from making so much money. It's just prosperous. And so there's produce. Here's, a, here's another category of blessing, peace. Peace. One of the greatest dangers of being an agricultural community was that regional uh, wars or full-on invasion devastated your ability to consistently bring in a crop. You, you can't harvest a crop when you're fighting off an army. And particularly heinous enemies would destroy the crops. They would cut down the trees. They would, they would sow salt into the farmland to take, make it take years to recover. And this would decimate the society. And by the way, what that would also do is signal all the wild animals in the region that it's their turn, that it's wild again, and they would start being a dangerous problem. And in ancient Israel, this could include wild bears, wild oxen, lions, and something you might not always associate with Israel, but were a problem, and that's crocodiles. And these would begin to, to come in, inland and, and go where there used to be more civilization but if israel would be faithful verse 6 i will give you peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid or to paraphrase you can sleep at night with your door unlocked no wild beasts no enemies bringing the sword to the families of israel and any enemies that do try anything verse 7 they'll be easy to run off a hundred chased off by five and so you have produce you have peace another blessing if they would keep covenant, we'll call population. Population. This goes all the way back to the central directive of all the Bible that we saw months ago in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Here in verse 9, I will turn to you and make you, familiar phrase, fruitful and multiply. Going all the way back to God's directive for mankind. That the birth of many children and many grandchildren will confirm God's kindness and blessing to them. And then we have the category of blessing we'll just call presence. Presence. Verse, verse 11. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. By the way, there's no reason to make this metaphorical in any fashion. The, the text gives us no reason to call this some sort of 
figure of speech, unlike the presence of God in the tabernacle, this is God describing himself as walking, as moving about freely among his own people. And so these are the blessings that Israel could expect if they would obey. I want to give you just a little side note, more for our own interest than anything, but these four categories of blessing is precisely what he begins removing from the earth as a whole during the time of the Great Tribulation. Just to show you briefly, produce... Revelation 6, beginning in verse 5, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now, what is this talking about? It's a little bit mysterious here, some figurative language. You have a rider on a black horse, Black in scripture depicting grimness and despair. Why is there grimness and despair? Well, what I just read to you was the picture of a market, a marketplace. These are the staples of life to an ancient Near Eastern reader, reader, wheat, barley, oil, wine. This is the basic grocery list. And what this is, is a picture of famine and food shortage. It's a partial famine. The, The worst is yet to come. The text says, do not harm the oil and wine. There are certain things still available, but not for long. But agricultural food production, shipping, all that contributes to the distribution and the sale of grain has been severely damaged by by war during the Great Tribulation. And now a quart of wheat costs a denarius. That's a day's wage. To put it this way, you have to work all day to have enough for one loaf of bread. That's famine. Famine. And so produce begins to be taken away because of the judgment of God. Peace begins to be taken away. Revelation 6, 3 and 4, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And by the way, verse 8 tells us that war and famine and now wild beasts are also killing millions. Speaking of killing millions, what else is taken away? Population. No more being fruitful and multiply. The earth is going the other direction. Revelation 6, verse 8, 25% of the population dies. Revelation 9, verse 15, 33% of those left die. If you're doing the math, that's half the earth's population so far. If that happened today, that's 4 billion people. That is a population curse. And what about the presence of God? Well, Christians are gone at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us this. And at the beginning, at least, the earth is now devoid of any human beings who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that is, in essence, like taking God out of the earth, so to speak. And the presence of God will be seen by the unbeliever now as something to be afraid of, something that is a curse. Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15, says that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And so the judgment of God is to take away produce and peace and population and presence. But for the time being, in Leviticus 26, Israel has a chance to receive those things. God promised 
to reward covenant faithfulness. Now, how does this apply to us as new covenant believers? How can we carefully apply this? Well, let me give you four applications to this principle of blessing for obedience to covenant faithfulness. First application, covenant faithfulness was first demonstrated at your salvation. Did you know that? Covenant faithfulness was first demonstrated when you got saved. Romans 10, 16 speaks of obeying the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 speaks of obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 4, 17, obey the gospel of God. And so at a very basic level, you have demonstrated covenant faithfulness by entering into the new covenant at Christ's invitation. And many benefits are guaranteed to be yours already without reference to what you do after salvation. We rejoice in that already. Ephesians 1.3 says you've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you have, to a certain degree, already demonstrated covenant faithfulness. And so we have blessings we can expect. But we could also say this. This is our second application. Covenant faithfulness after salvation yields spiritual blessings. Covenant faithfulness after salvation yields spiritual blessings. We have, for example, access to the full armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6 We can demonstrate and enjoy the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those fruit of the Spirit are there for the picking. You can't make them, but you can take them. We can enjoy victory over sin. Romans 6, we can enjoy the people of God. Romans 12, we can enjoy marriages and families which bring joy and delight. How? If we obey the principles for marriage and family. And so covenant faithfulness after salvation yields great spiritual blessing. It's a third application. We want to be careful not to spiritualize physical blessings. We want to be careful not to spiritualize physical blessings. And I'm speaking specifically of these listed here in Leviticus 26, that somehow these are less than spiritual, that produce and peace and population and presence are now simply a spiritual reality only and you would be surprised how many believers have been taught this that for example produce is actually speaking of spiritual fruit in our lives peace is actually speaking just of peace in our hearts population is speaking of a a harvest of new christians and presence speaks of the holy spirit in our hearts those things are all true But it's a mistake to negate the physical and the material blessings as somehow less than spiritual. Those physical and material blessings do accompany covenant faithfulness. Now, I can prove this to you from the New Testament. Romans 8.32, the Apostle Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When you got saved, God didn't say, Well, now you have salvation, but I'm going to take away your food, water, air, and the place to live. He didn't say that. He provided other things for us too as well that are part of being his child. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 31, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father, listen to this, knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here it is again. All these things will be added to you. 
this isn't the prosperity gospel at all. This is simply the result of being adopted as a child of God. That he takes care of you. You can expect his care, his help, and his love. And when that care and that help is no longer needed on this earth, then your time here is done and you go home to perfected blessing. And so we we never want to make the mistake of spiritualizing that which is physical and material because God hasn't done that. When he says grape harvest, he means grape harvest. And the text of Scripture is very clear when he's being metaphorical. That's not difficult to discern. Let me give you one more application. The definition of victory is different in the New Covenant. Our definition of victory is different under the New Covenant. For Israel, God promises them military victory and literal protection from very physical enemies. For the New Covenant, Christian, victory comes as we take up our cross and as we are crucified with Christ, as we're identified with Christ, and as we walk in Christ. So where is your victory? Well, our current victory happens right here. It's internal. It happens despite our circumstances expressed in obedience. But by the way, there will be a day when all who oppose Christ will be defeated and we'll get to see that day, but probably not in your lifetime. And so we do experience that same victory, but it's internal. And as I have the privilege of counseling with people and speaking to those who are suffering and in trial and tribulation, one of my favorite reminders is that all suffering for the Christian actually only happens within the few inches between your ears. Because how you think about and how you, how you believe about your suffering is really the only battleground. Because if your heart is right and you trust the Lord that you have victory in Christ and that nothing in this life can take that victory away and the battle is won right in here, then anything can come at you and nothing can defeat you. And so our victory is the same and yet it is in a different venue, so to speak. So that's the principle of how God interacts with his people, that God rewards covenant faithfulness. Now we get to the fine print. Second principle, God disciplines covenant unfaithfulness. God disciplines covenant unfaithfulness. Now in this section, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 26, there are two conjunctions, connecting words, that are placed side by side and it happens twice. And here are the two. But if, but if, and here's the first occurrence, verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments. And then God outlines his punishments for disobedience. And this is where we obviously need to be careful. We need to be discerning. We need to be precise. These are not punishments for minor offenses by people who are trying to serve the Lord and fail and continue to strive for holiness. These are for those who reject and abhor God's laws and yet are trying to live under the protection and the blessing of a theocratic society. And let me give you an example that we can understand. This is for the unbelieving church attender who expects the church to provide blessing and help as some sort of charitable organization. But that's not why we exist. The church exists to give the gospel, and the church is not made up of everyone who walks through the door. The church is made up of those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Others are incidental, and we want to minister to them, but they are not part of the church. The biggest need that the lost person has is the gospel, not to have their social or material needs met 
at some level. And so we want to be precise. These are not punishments for those who are faithful and who are trying to, trying to live for the Lord, but fail as we all do. What you're going to see is that these consequences increase in intensity as rebellion persists. And we might call these phases of God's consequences, and we'll just name them. Phase one is found in verses 16 and 17, and we'll call this one disease and defeat. And let me back up to verse 15. This is who these are for. If you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant. So this is somebody whose heart is completely cold to the Lord. But phase one, disease and defeat. Verse 16, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you will sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. If that doesn't wake them up, phase two, beginning of verse 18, we'll name this one drought and famine. Drought and famine, verse 18. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins and I will break the pride of your power. Then I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. The heavens like iron, the earth like bronze, it's so dried up, it's like metal. And so there's drought and famine. Well, if that doesn't wake them up, then God moves on to phase three. Beginning in verse 21, we'll call this one beasts and bereavement. Beasts and bereavement. Verse 21 Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins and I will let loose the wild beasts against you which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. You notice how God keeps escalating the consequences and if that's not enough, he goes to phase four, beginning in verse 23, we'll call this one war and siege. And if by this discipline you were not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And so war and siege, and now they're, now they're to the point of starving. And they're, they're baking little bits of bread for large numbers of people. And if that doesn't wake them up, phase five is so bad, we have to have three words that go with it. Destruction, exile, and cannibalism. Verse 27. But if in spite of this, phases one, two, three, and four, You will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. Then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you and I will lay your cities waste 
and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. During the siege of Jerusalem, beginning in 587 and going over into 586 by Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah records in Lamentations 4 verse 10, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. And when the child died of starvation, the only choice was we must eat this child. That is the ultimate degradation of a society, exactly what God said would happen. And so if Israel turns away from God into idolatry and debauchery and immorality, God would step by step ratchet up the consequences. And a brief survey of Israel's history from about the time of Solomon all the way to the exile will show each of those five phases happening. How heartbreaking this is. Jeremiah chapter 2, God indicts Israel. And this, I read this again this week and it just struck me how heartbreaking this is. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 10, God challenges them. He, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, go to other nations. Take a, take a ship across the sea and go look at other nations. Go to all your neighbors and look at them. In verse 11, he says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. In other words, God is saying, even pagan nations with their false, useless, inane gods have stayed loyal to them. And you have not stayed loyal to the one true God. You know, almost never in ancient literature do you read about a crisis of faith among the pagans you don't read about uh, the worshipers of Ra in Egypt having having a big revival to try to remind people to worship Ra and yet God tells them all the pagans are faithful to their false gods and you will not be faithful to the one true living God how heartbreaking and now, as we pointed out last week, verses 34 through 37 describes the land as desolate. It will enjoy the Sabbaths, which Israel skipped in covenant disobedience. And here's the final outcome of God's progressive discipline. Verse 38, And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their, your, their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. But remember I said there were two sets of but ifs. Here's the second one, verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies... If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them and they shall make amends for their iniquity 
because they spurn my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, listen to this, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God, because they may break covenant, but God never will. Verse 45, but I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. There is hope and it's a certain hope that even in exile, God will remember them. Now, how does this section apply to us as new covenant believers? Let me give you four more applications as we kind of bridge the bridge the time frame here from the mosaic covenant to the new covenant first application pretty obvious disobedience brings discipline and continued disobedience brings even more severe discipline disobedience brings discipline and continued disobedience brings more severe discipline i know that christians generally speaking don't like to hear about the discipline of the lord but what does hebrews 12 say that god disciplines those whom he what loves first corinthians 11 speaks of those in the church some are sick and some have died because of disobedience to the lord what is that that's progressive discipline we've said this before there's no surefire indicator that a period of suffering is is indicative or connected to sin in your life i've often thought how convenient it would be if we just had a little indicator on our arm or something i've got a cold oh that's because i'm a jerk Okay, well, I need to repent of that. Or, no, it's green, just means I have a cold because I live in a sinful world. The Lord doesn't tell us that because what does He want us to assume? I think He wants us to assume that any period of suffering should engender some self-examination. And of course, all suffering is some form of discipline. Hebrews 12, which God uses to conform you more fully into the image of Christ, and this discipline proves that He loves you. However, as a pastor, I have watched this. I have watched a person or a family be warned, you are going down this road and here are the consequences that can happen and they don't believe me or they don't believe the elders or they don't believe one another when there's a rebuke from a, from a believer to a believer. And I have watched the wheels come off of people's lives because they continue in unrepentant sin. Here's a second application. Even God's discipline is gradual. Even God's discipline is gradual. God continues to give many gracious chances to repent. In the seeming darkness of God's difficult dealings with His children, there are in the shadows grace and mercy and patience. And for the Christian enduring the humbling hand of God, we're to remember this. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the, the mighty hand of God, the mighty disciplining hand, the heavy hand of God, when it feels as though the heavy-handedness of God is just oppressing you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, that the very hand that seems to be pushing you down is the same hand that will turn over and lift you up. And so we trust the Lord But for the unbeliever who is persistently rejecting God's offer of forgiveness, he should be warned. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because the oppressive hand of God will only continue to press you all the way into the lake of fire. 
Here's a third application, more of a family application. For parents struggling with difficult and rebellious teens, Leviticus 26 is the pattern for discipline. For parents struggling with difficult and rebellious teens, Leviticus 26 is the pattern for discipline. You have an offer of blessings for obedience to, uh, which are clearly laid out as a law. And parents might say, well, I, I don't want to give a law to my 15-year-old. Well, then you can expect to be run over and have there be chaos. You must have laws in your house. And you also give that teen a promise of gradually increasing negative consequences for refusal to obey. Do you know why teenagers run households? Because dads and moms won't stand up to them. That's the only reason. Promise of gradual increasing negative consequences. At each step, there's an offer of blessing if repentance occurs. And the final step, when all other options continue to yield rebellion, what did God do with his people when they continued to rebel? He kicked them out of his house. And ultimately, you say, you have refused all offers of grace. You have continued, despite my ratcheting up the consequences to rebel and to push back, therefore you cannot live here anymore. And oh, that feels hard. But that is God's model. And yet, as God models, this is never total rejection. He still loves his people and he still holds out hope and restoration to them. And as you're escorting that teen to someplace else to live, and I know that's hard to do and that's difficult, you tell them, All you have to do is repent and you're right back home. That's all you have to do. Speaking of which, God's faithfulness, one more application. God is always faithful to His elect. God is always faithful to His elect. His elect individuals and His elect nation. Even the most catastrophic punishments were not God's last word to to Israel Unbelievers definitely would be purged from the nation, but God always spares a remnant. And they look forward now to the blessing to be found in the new covenant as promised in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 31, and so forth. But the New Testament confirms, by the way, that these curses still apply to Israel, even this day. Many of the threatened curses will again fall on the nation Matthew 24 and 25 tells us this. Mark 13, Luke 21, the wars, the famines, the scattering. These all harmonize with the curses of Leviticus 26. But here's God's faithfulness. If the curses continue to be fulfilled, then what else must be fulfilled? Then the blessings must be fulfilled as well. Because God is faithful. Listen, if God is done with Israel as a nation then the current state that they're in of spiritual darkness serves no purpose. In fact, the eminent Dr. Alan Ross says it best. He said this, Biblical scholars must also consider that if only the judgments of God and not the blessings are poured out on Israel, then the purpose of the judgments would be lost and God would be unjust. Jesus said it. He said the same thing. Luke 21, 24. They, that is Israel and Jerusalem, will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Listen to this. Until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. What's the time of the Gentiles? We're in it. It is the church age. That there is a coming restoration. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. Romans eleven twenty five. Lest you be wise in your own sight. 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. It has come in. This is not the church becoming Israel or Israel becoming the church or somehow us mixing together. It is the time of the Gentiles right now. And there will be a day when Israel is restored as a nation. I think it's sad that many believe that God is done permanently with Israel as an ethnic nation from the time of the cross. Scripture doesn't indicate that. How did the apostles view this? The apostles preached to the Jews to repent so that Israel could have their time again. Acts three nineteen and 20. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. To a Jewish audience, that means only one thing, a restored nation with Messiah walking among them. That's the only thing that means. There are no other options. Why is that important? Because if God is faithful to his elect nation, then he will be faithful to his elect church. And we have, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, assurance of his faithfulness and salvation. By the way, remember the blessings upon an obedient Israel promised of produce and peace and population and presence? The Old Testament prophecies of Israel's future contain all of those. Produce. Amos chapter 9, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Remember I said that as soon as you're done with one thing, it's time to harvest the next one. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Produce. There is no reason to spiritualize that. Produce means food. Peace. Isaiah 2 verse 4, He shall judge. This is Messiah. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Produce and peace. They also get population. Isaiah 65, 20, No more shall there be in an infant who lives but a few days. Zero mortality rate, infant mortality rate. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. In other words, in this in-between kingdom when there are still mortals on the earth along with those of us who have been glorified from the church age, people will say, Oh, what a shame. He was only a hundred. What does that mean? It means that the earth is going to be exploding in population. And how about presence? Zechariah 14, 5 and 9. Then the Lord my God will come and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Can you grasp that there will be a day, I don't know how we'll travel, but there will be a day where you can travel to Jerusalem and say, I'd like to see Jesus. What a day that will be. Well, one more principle for God's interaction with his people. God rewards covenant faithfulness. God disciplines covenant unfaithfulness. And last, God expects integrity from his people. God expects integrity from his people. Now, all of chapter 27, we don't believe this, but some scholars have thought this was sort of tacked on later because it sort of seems to be an addendum, um, almost an appendix, 
but God is, he is free to do that if he wants to. But this is all inspired text. But all of chapter 27 concerns a, a different topic. The topic of things or people which have been dedicated to the Lord. More precisely in the Old Testament is called a vow. I am vowing that this thing or this person is set apart for the Lord. This is the setting apart, the sanctifying of things or people for service or as a gift to God. But to be more specific, chapter 27 is primarily about the unsanctifying of these things when you changed your mind. The how and the when of of how that's possible. Verses 1 through 8, and we'll just touch on this very briefly. Verses 1 through 8 speak of persons who are dedicated to the Lord. This might include a special vow of some sort, such as Hannah made in 1 Samuel 1 to give her firstborn son to the service of the Lord. It might include the promise of a Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6, where for a specific period of time, you were exclusively devoting yourself to dedication to serving the Lord. But the text says, if you want to get out of this vow, you pay a fine and you redeem that person back. And those eight verses set out the fee structure, so to speak. And the verses 9 through 13 speak of animals dedicated to the Lord. Can they be taken back? Can they be redeemed? He can only redeem an animal given for a sacrifice, which turns out to be unclean, that the animal is disqualified for any reason for being a pure sacrifice. Clean animals, however, could not be redeemed. Once they're given, they're given permanently. Especially after they're dead, you can't get them back anyway. Verses 14 and 15 Any houses dedicated to the Lord as a gift can be redeemed. A long section, because there are a lot of rules going around valuation, verses 16 through 25, any land dedicated to the Lord can be redeemed. Verses 26 through 29 tell us that you can't vow to give something to God that already belongs to Him. Verse 26, you can't dedicate a firstborn animal to the Lord, already belongs to Him by law. Verse 27, you can redeem a firstborn that is unclean or has some disqualifying malady. And then verses 28 and 29, nothing already devoted to the Lord, such as a captured enemy or even someone who's slated for execution, such as an enemy of God specifically, uh, God specifically commanded you to kill. Nothing which already belongs to God can be re-gifted, so to speak. It, It would be like me saying, Lord... I give to you this pulpit. And the Lord would answer, it's already mine. So you can't give it to me. And then in verses 30 through 33, you have laws concerning how you could redeem your tithe. Remember, uh, tithing wasn't done by giving coins, by giving money. Tithing was done by giving crops and by giving animals primarily. And so you might need some of them back for some reason. And so you could redeem your tithe as well. But in the case of all the vows which could be undone, there was a catch. The catch was anything you want to redeem includes a 20% fee to reclaim that thing. Verse 13, 15, 19, 27, 31. Now, what this basically is saying is that if you are going to undo a vow, I'm going to allow you to do that, but you will do it with integrity and it's going to cost you. So how does this concept of integrity, of keeping your vows, or at least getting out of them with integrity, honor, and and penalty, how does this apply to the new covenant believer? 
I think the applications are, are fairly simple. First, and we'll do four again. The promise of service to God requires faithfulness. The promise of service to God requires faithfulness. Who are those in the church of Jesus Christ called to serve God? That is all of us. That means everyone. We're all called to be dedicated to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this works itself primarily, works itself out primarily in the church. Romans 12 lists, for example, spiritual gifts that we're to exercise in the church. And Hebrews 13 tells us that we're to do this under the direction and the submission to the church's called and set apart leadership. We are to be faithful to do this. I'm amazed at how many believers, and and I praise the Lord that this isn't much of an issue at Grace Bible Church, but how many believers see themselves as God's gift to the church instead of seeing salvation as as God's gift to them. When we sign people up to be members of Grace Bible Church, about the first thing we do is say, that's fabulous, where are you going to be serving? Because Christians serve. Here's a second application. Our service and dedication to the Lord is not motivated by promises of prosperity. It's not motivated by promises of prosperity. It's a privilege to offer an act of devotion or adoration to the Lord. As a matter of fact, in Israel, to take it back, you were 20% poorer. There was no prosperity as a result of that service. What do we do? We serve the Lord. We submit to the Lord. We support the Lord's work. Why? Out of love and gratitude. That's one of the reasons the prosperity gospel is so heinous. We don't come to Christ to get something. We come to Christ to lose everything. Our service and dedication to the Lord is not motivated by promises of prosperity. Similar to this, here's a third application. We give to the Lord without strings attached. We give to the Lord without strings attached. And, and I know that's a, that is a, just a, a, a phrase which basically means we give to the Lord without conditions. There are no conditions. Did you notice that the clean animals that were given were always unredeemable? To put it in theological terms, once given, always given? That they're done? We don't give to the Lord, for example, financially with the expectation of special privileges or rights as a result, two times in my ministry of the last 25 years or so, I have had somebody, not at Grace Bible Church, thankfully, somebody say to me, I would like for you to do A, B, and C. And I might say no, or I'll think about it. And if they're not getting their way, that person would say, this has happened to me twice, do you know how much I give? Both times what I've said is, we will no longer be receiving one nickel from you. Because you will not buy favors. The privilege to give is now not yours any longer. One of them left. The other one repented and said, may I please give again? Because it's a privilege. Somebody who is able to be particularly generous, we praise the Lord for that, but that's not purchasing any special rights. Have you noticed that we don't have on our walls anywhere, uh, for example, at Grace Bible Church, these are the diamond level givers and these are the gold level and the silver level. Down here are the special mentions. (laughs) We don't have that. Every once in a while, I ask our elders about the most generous givers in our church. I don't ask for names. I don't want to know the names, but I am often pleasantly surprised with the general description that some of the most able to give and the most generous are those who are the most quiet Faithful servants who are dedicated and have never asked for anything in return except to have the word of God preached faithfully to them. 
That is always a pleasant surprise. One more application. We don't always call them vows, but the Christian life has numerous promises to God. We don't call them vows necessarily, but the Christian life has numerous promises to God, and I'll give you some examples. Our baptism is a promise. Baptism is a public commitment to live by faith, by God's grace and obedience to the Lord. I've never done this, but I have been tempted at times with one or two that I have personally baptized and have made a public profession. They've made a public profession of faith and then turned their back on the Lord. I have been tempted to write a letter and to tell them, you don't count because you broke your promise. Baptism doesn't say I'm going to live perfectly. It just says I'm going to live under the Lordship of Christ and I'm proclaiming that publicly. It is a promise. It is a commitment. And the logical step which goes with baptism is membership covenant. Our membership covenant, if anybody wants to question it, it's just a paraphrase of Romans chapter 12. That's all it is. This is what Paul commanded that believers do in the context of their local church body. That's a covenant. That's a promise. Giving. Many of you made promises about joyful generosity. That's a, that's a promise. We're to live with integrity to the very best of our ability. A few of us have made promises to God concerning our call to the gospel ministry. That's a key component of ordination, by the way. Questions to a, to a potential candidate for ordination. There should be questions like, is this a whim? Is this a career choice? Is this something that you just thought was a good idea one night when you were watching TV? Or is this a calling? Our marriages, that's the one thing we do say they're sealed with what? With wedding vows. And those matter. Those are important. How about this one? By calling ourselves Christians, we are the ones Jesus said that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. How about the promise to live according to the authority of the Bible? And I've seen this so often and it breaks my heart that in a crisis, believers tend to abandon the well-worn path. They tend to come up with crazy human solutions out of a desperation for emotional relief immediately without searching the scriptures. I've asked somebody recently, how long have you spent searching the scriptures to find a solution to this problem? And the answer I got was, I'm just, I just can't. No, you just won't. In fact, Leviticus ends with that very reminder. Leviticus 27, 34. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded. What is the Lord? He is the master. He is our sovereign. Well, I tried to think of a way to summarize tonight's lesson very briefly. So listen to this summary of Leviticus 26 and 27. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That is, of course, Psalm 1, which is a perfect summary 
of Leviticus 26 and 27. Well, I hope that you will be believers who strive for covenant faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for this glorious book. It saddens me that so many have made fun of Leviticus. So many have used Leviticus as an example of how supposedly boring parts of the Bible are. Leviticus is how difficult the Bible is, and yet in Leviticus we see holiness, 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 holiness. We see that glorious admonition that we are to be holy for the Lord is holy. And so I praise you and thank you for the time that we've had in this book, and I pray, Lord, that it would encourage us toward sanctification, toward aggressively pursuing Christ-likeness, toward looking in the mirror and thinking on that sin that has been just nagging at us for decades and saying, today is the day that I give it the knockout punch through the power of the Spirit, that I'm going to take it on, that I'm going to memorize Scripture, that I'm going to confess it, that I'm going to work through it, that I'm going to get better and more like Christ because I love Christ because of what He did for me on the cross and because my salvation is secure and that someday I will be made like Christ But I don't want it to be a radical transformation. I want it to be a gradual transformation. So Lord, let us pursue holiness. Let us not push back against your law of Christ. But let us be those who humbly, humbly obey. That as Peter admonished us, to humble ourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt us. All for the glory of Christ we would pray. Amen.